What is up, UMass fans? Welcome back to the UMass Women's Basketball Show. This is episode 11 from WMUA Sports. Alongside Sam Kinches, Chris Vogel, and Beckett Story, I am Jacob Munch, and this is your home for UMass Women's Basketball. The Minute Women are 8-3. They haven't played a game in over in a week and a half, but they will get going on Wednesday against St. Peter's. But, fellas, this will be a bit of a broad episode, focusing more on the non-conference schedule as a whole. With only two non-conference games left, we're basically at the midpoint part of the season. So I want to get you guys' thoughts on how we think the non-conference schedule has gone for the Minute Women. Sam, we'll start with you. Yeah, Jacob, I think if you look at the non-conference schedule, UMass, for the most part, has played to expectations They've majority beaten the teams they 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 should beat. But in the same time, they've also lost some tough games to some really good teams. But also in some ways, they've surprised people in some ways. For example, sweeping sweeping the FIU Thanksgiving Classic, going toe-to-toe with Arizona State. And the Harvard game, going toe-to-toe with Tennessee, one of the top teams in the nation. Granted, they've kind of fallen off this year. That's not near here nor now. That being said, for the most part, besides maybe the Columbia game, nothing has really been outside the norm or really surprising for the most part. Their best players have been playing the way they should have been. Nothing too alarming. Obviously, nothing's perfect. But for the most part, they should be happy with where they are. Yeah, I think through the first 12 games of this, I'm sorry, 11 games of the season, you probably would have hoped or predicted for 9-2. and two. Right now at eight and three, like you said, still very good. Um, yeah, still very, very good. Beckett. Well, actually, just what you were saying there, uh, Jacob. You know, I think you look to the schedule from before the season and you think, yeah, I think best case scenario, or maybe not best case scenario, but a really good spot to be in to go into conference play would be being 11 and two. And that would be awesome. But if they can make it 10 and three, that would still be great for them. And they can do that. They need to close out the non conference schedule well. And they need to go into conference play feeling confident, feeling good, and just keep on rolling. Yeah, I think it's uh, just like a solid, not great, not bad. Like, I'd probably give it a C if I had to grade it. I think I've said it many times. Going into the season, you're expecting you're probably going to lose the Tennessee game. You're probably going to – hopefully you're going to – you were going to split going into Arizona. Uh, and then, you know, you got nine other – ten other conference games – or non-conference games. So – Nine and one in those games that you should win is a pretty solid way to do it. You would have loved to be uh, nine and two right now instead of eight and three. And that grade quickly gets a lot worse if you don't take care of business against St. Peter's and Dartmouth. But you can definitely live at eight and three and then 10 and three to finish it. But you do kind of lose some of that upside of being ranked or potentially getting to a top 16 spot, which I think was always a long shot, but they they probably will not be ranked regardless now that they've lost two of three to the power five teams they play. Well, and I think you're exactly right. And I think Sam is exactly right in the point that they kind of did about as we expected, which means they didn't exceed expectations. They didn't make a national mark per se. They didn't all of a sudden take their schedule, take the country by storm. They beat who they should and they lost to who we expected to sh- them to and maybe they had some close losses some good looking losses but for me the grade I would give them was probably a B 
like it's been good. You'll take eight and three in non-conference with the traveling they had, with the road trips they've had. You'll take eight and three, no question. It just isn't the knock your socks off, oh, you should be ranked type of non-conference play that you would hope for while knowing it wasn't always feasible, Chris. How close is this team, though? Like, if they had stolen, if they'd finished off Columbia, if they won that game, and then if they had stolen either the Missouri game or the Tennessee game, we're looking at them as a one-loss team. And you're looking at them as a ranked team and as a team that could do damage in March if they keep playing like that. So it kind of just hurts those close losses, just looking back at them. Because you're not going to remember, hey, they only lost by nine to Tennessee and five to Missouri come March. You're going to say, okay, they're, they lost three games in the non-conference. Yeah, if you were 10-1 and one right now with the one loss being at Tennessee, you may be 25th, 26th in the country. But I think, and I said this at the time too, I think the Missouri loss is the one that is going to haunt this team all year long. Columbia, that's, I mean, maybe it is technically an upset, but people just don't realize that Columbia is a top 30 team in the country. They are so much better than Mizzou. They are like incredibly good, by far the second best team UMass has played this season. And losing to them, while certainly unfortunate, I don't think it's the end all be all, but yes, I completely agree though, Chris, that if you're 10 and one, then, then you're getting the national rankings, Sam. Yeah. Jacob, to your point, it's not the lack of opportunity. UMass has pretty much been in every game they've played this season and especially their losses for the most part, they've had a chance to win. So if there is a frustration that you can look at is the fact that, the game somehow slipped away or was too little too late. Those little things that you say will just come back to haunt you and think you're thinking about what if the things that you can do this early in the season sort of help your resume going into conference play as the, as people are considering them on a national scale. It's again, not unexpected, but it's not per lack of opportunity. Yeah. They've had the chances, no doubt. Beckett. Yeah. And I think uh, to that point, Sam, you know, I think it's like, they didn't just lose three games. They they lost three quarters. I think, like you said, most of these games have been mm-hmm. very close, and they could have all gone the other way. And that stinks, and that and it stings, actually, right now. But um, I think one thing to be hopeful about is that this team has not peaked yet, and I think we can all agree upon that. Yeah. And I think there's no better time to peak than during conference play. And that's what non-conference play is. For most of the teams in the country, it's a warm-up to conference play. I think if you're one of the teams where non-conference play is all about solidifying your national postseason picture, then you're one of the fortunate teams, to be honest. And UMass is included in that this year. They have gotten their program to that level. But conference play is when it matters. And I think the key heading into conference play that they didn't have in non-conference play so far is health. And maybe we'll see that change on Wednesday. There's a media session with coach Verdi tomorrow on Tuesday. We'll see if there's any health updates there on some of his players, but UMass hasn't been fully healthy really all season long so far. And I think that hurts. It makes it difficult And so I think with some players down eight and three in non-conference play with two games to go, I think you you're okay with that. Like you'll 
taken, and I think he'll probably move on. Now, looking ahead to the upcoming non-conference schedules, UMass has two more non-A-10 games. They host St. Peter's in about 48 hours' time on Wednesday the 21st at 2 p.m. It's an odd start time, so just keep in mind for that game, it's at 2 p.m. It will be on Nesson and ESPN+. Plus. Also, Beckett and I will be on the call for WMUA for that one. UMass is coming off a very difficult stretch of games. Arizona State, Mizzou, and then Columbia. Well, it kind of changes a little bit when they play the St. Peter's Peacocks. St. Peter's has struggled this season. 0-9, they are 0-6 away from their home gym. They've struggled to score. They've struggled to win. It has not been a pretty sight for the Peacocks. And Chris, I wanted to get your thoughts on UMass's upcoming game versus them. Yeah, it certainly not, has not been the season they were hoping for. If you look at their average scoring margin, they're losing by an average of 20 points a game, and a lot of those have been significantly worse. I think the two games you can look at most for a comparison, they played fellow A-10 opponent Fordham uh, at Fordham. That game, 81-39 to 39, Fordham mm-hmm. victory. Then they played Central Connecticut State, who UMass opened the season with, struggled a little bit, but then pulled away from. Uh, Central Connecticut won that game 76-56, and the offense looked good. So it's a game that UMass should take care of business, and they just have to show up and play well. And I think that UMass, or for St. Peter's, you mentioned the Fordham game. The Peacocks were outscored 47-16 to in the middle two quarters by the Fordham Rams. UMass has the same potential, the same capability, I think, to clobber the Peacocks like the Rams did a little over a month ago, Sam. And I think this could be such a breath of fresh air for the moon women coming off two tough losses against two very tough opponents. You just having an opponent where you can just expect to just beat up on handily and just easy, just easy pickings the whole game, smooth sailing. This should be a nice sort of way to ease back into games after being off for a week and a half during the holiday season to ease their way into conference play. However, don't be surprised if this game's tight after the first minutes. Don't be surprised if this game's tight after the first 15 minutes, in my opinion, because UMass hasn't played a game in a week and a half. That is not easy to come back from. I They've gotten a lot of days off from the gym. They've gotten time to reset and get healthy. And so if you're starting with a team that's not supposed to be very good on paper, how do you make sure that you are ready to go right from the beginning? UMass is a team that sometimes struggles for starts at struggles to have good starts at home. I It could happen on Wednesday again. Yeah, and I think to that point, it's all about you got to make sure you don't play down to your opponent. We talked about, again, it being sort of easy pickings, but the mentality has to be for Tory Verde. We know what we're going to get him. Tory Verde is someone who doesn't take his foot off the gas in any situation, so you know they're going to come out and play hard. They're going to want to defend home court. And when you look at the Peacocks, they only have three players over six feet. The majority of their team is very short. You match should come out hustling, crashing the boards. They should be all over the place and just come out with a newfound energy and just come in and inject some life into the building. The weird start time of a two o'clock game in the middle of the week does worry me, especially coming off of a finals week. So you got to remember the players are picking finals too. So that's time they're not in the gym, whatever. 
that is a recipe for like if you're the better team on paper you don't want to have that two o'clock start coming off the finals you want that to be a seven o'clock game on or saturday game where everything's normal you go through your normal routine does worry me like you said they could come out slow in the first couple minutes and all of a sudden oh it's 11 to 8 at the end of the first quarter because nobody's shooting the ball well for either team yeah i think that definitely could be something that's an issue for that odd start time yeah and uh I don't actually know how this is going to come into play yet, but I think this is really interesting. This is a team that uh, it's a, sort of team that UMass hasn't really seen yet. They 10 of their 11 players play over 10 minutes a night. So they're going to be changing like a lot, which could bode very well for the minute women or maybe not bode so well for the minute women. So I'm hoping that if, you know, they're changing a lot, m- maybe the people who are on the court for, for UMass are going to be able to get more in a rhythm that nobody can do on the other team. Cause they have to, mm-hmm. they're switching out every five minutes. I don't know, just something I noticed. No, you're right. That is very interesting. Everyone who has played, there's one player on their stats sheet who's listed as three separate players, but right. is the same player. <laughs> it is and the I'm, same player. She's the only one who doesn't play 10 minutes. And it looks like she averages eight and a half points per game. And so all 11 of them do get time. And so for UMass, it's a matter of knowing personnel. I think know who shoots the three ball well because UMass hasn't done a very good job of like knowing who the sharpshooters are because you don't want to let someone get hot. Yeah, there's one player on that roster that does worry me a little bit. They have a junior that's a transfer from Temple, Jada Williams. Yes. Uh, the only player on the team averaging over 10 points a game. She's got 11.9, also averages eight rebounds a game. And then a couple steals, a couple blocks, kind of does everything for them. I feel like if she's the one they... If they can limit her production, it should be an easy win. But if she gets going, she can keep the Peacocks in the game. Chris, what is it you always say in the show? What's the key to an upset? Finish my sense. Making shots and rebounding. The Peacocks have one player that is very good at making shots, shooting 37% from three, and that's Rachel Kerr. She is a junior. She's from Oldbridge, New Jersey. She has had some – she had 20 – her season high was 25 points. She has scored over not six threes in a game. She has the potential to go off for shooting spurts at times. So, Jacob, like you said, UMass is a team that can get destroyed by a good shooter or a good shooting team. If they lock down the shooters, especially Rachel Kerr, they can control the pace of the game and just control the, the perimeter for the entire length of the game. And, yes, I think the two of them are the players UMass just has to make sure don't get hot because if – Rachel Cool is all of a sudden going off for 18 points because he's drilling triples all over the place. That's problematic. But Chris, I agree. Jada Williams has had a very, very good season. You're averaging 12 points and eight rebounds. Like that is very good, especially for a team that only averages 40 some odd points per game. And so I think she has the ability to be, be a bit of a nuisance for UMass. She's also extremely efficient. I don't think they've played anyone close to the shooting percentage. 60% from the field. She's only taken 48 shots this year, which is kind of surprising. She missed some time uh, to injuries or not starting. She's only played seven of their nine, started five of them. But that shooting percentage is something that, coupled with Cool's three-point shooting, those two can keep them in the game. And if they're going to score points, it pretty much has to be those two because they've scored almost half of the team's combined points. And I think UMass can shut Jada Williams in particular down just by being physical right out of the gate. She's only a sophomore. She plays in a slightly 
lower conference than the Atlantic 10, albeit she hasn't played many conference games yet. But if UMass attacks her defensively, meaning they give it to Brian Galakulondi down low and just let them go to work and show we're older, we're stronger, we're more physical, we want it more, that might be enough to just knock Williams off her game. Or she responds and shows and says that she can play with those higher level of of bigs that UMass has. Beckett. Yeah, and um, I might be walking myself back on this on Wednesday. We'll see. But, uh, I mean, like we were talking about, Rachel Cool is the only player on that team that really shoots the three well. I mean, she's shooting 37%. And the team as a whole is shooting 26%. So she has to be doing the majority of that work there. Um, I would argue that almost everyone else on this team could not shoot threes. So if they get their open shots, I'm not going to be complaining tomorrow or on Wednesday. That's all I'm saying. Only three players in the team have made multiple three-point shots, which is kind of interesting. You've got Cool who's 20 for 54. Millis or Mills who's six for 26, which is not a great percentage. And then Leonard, who's five for 18, everybody else, three players have one and then the rest of the team none. So yeah, they don't like shooting threes to start with. So it is really just cool from three. So Jacob, I, I may add, if that's sort of, you know, knowing your personnel, you know, this team isn't going to try to shoot the three. Well, do you maybe not go to a man and maybe adapt his own, let them shoot. You're willing to give up those threes in order to make sure you're getting over rebounds. and can run the fast break. Cause that's this team's bread and butter. They're very good in transition and they can force these stops and force them to take these threes, which they're clearly not good at making. This could get out of hand very quickly if they adapt. Maybe if they adapt that. Yes. And I think we may see zone at some points more for UMass just to try things out a little bit. But the minute women in general, they know what their strengths are and they tend to not change how they play based on their opponent. They feel if they play their brand of basketball, their style, the way they want to, that they can kind of beat anyone. And so I think that would remain this focus here is just, we're going to play our basketball. Like we're going to stick with our man to man defense and ride that out. And I think that'll probably be fine for them. I think we'll probably see zone at some points, though, because you're right. The way you beat a zone typically is with really good three-point shooting, and they don't have that. So we may see some tinkering back and forth, but I don't think UMass will switch too much. I also think the Minute Women could have a field day when it comes to running the floor, points and transitions, etc. The Peacocks turn the basketball over a ton, and UMass could really capitalize on that. St. Peter's averages 24 per... 24 turnovers a game. UMass loves to get those steals, get those interceptions and just race down the floor, lay it in with one hand. They could have 30 transition points tomorrow if they're lucky. So I guess let's do score predictions and see how we're all feeling for this one. I don't know if we'll have any upset predictions, but Beckett, we'll start with you. All right, I'm just looking at this PDF. They give up 67 points per game. They score 47. So I'm going to go. I do not think this game will be particularly close if the Minute Women handle business. I'm going 74-50. Chris? I'm of two minds on this one. The one where I talked about they could keep it close because a bunch of just weird factors going into the game. Or UMass wanting to treat this as a get-right game. Ultimately, I think that side wins out with 
Uh, Verdi liking to play his starters deep in the game. I'm going to go probably the biggest blow of all of the season by far. And I, this might be too many points, but 101 to 38 UMass. I think, to I, think Breen, I think Breen puts up like 40 in this game and plays 38 minutes. Lock that in. Because that's unreal. to 38. If any team's going to put up some absurd number, it's UMass because they're not going to pull those starters up 50. Yeah, I don't think the one-on-one, I, I don't know, winning by 60. They're only, I mean, they're I only mean, scoring, yeah. what, 42 points yeah. a game? So it's slightly less? When, if they win by 63 points, I will be obviously very impressed. I'll be excited. I like the bold basically position. tripling the other tripling St. Peter's score if that happens. I wonder if there's a promotion yeah. if that happens in the Monza. <laughs> yeah. Um, I'm gonna have a little more mercy as opposed to Chris. <laughs> I still think it will be a blowout. I'm gonna go along the line with Beckett. I think UMass will hit 80. I think it'll be round probably like 30 point blow. Give me like 82 to 52 to be exact. Ooh, that was very close to what I was going for. I was gonna say 84 to 53. I think. UMass will score a lot. I think St. Peter's score might get knocked up in the last couple of minutes. Um, But yeah, UMass will have a slow first quarter. Then they'll be up by 10, maybe 15 at halftime, and then they'll run away with it from there. UMass lose those last two games. I do not think that helps St. Peter's at all. If anything, no. it, just, it just makes it 10 times worse because you know they're not going to be like, it's not going to be a letdown game. It's going to be a get right game for UMass. At least it should be. It's been a long should time be. since be. UMass lost back-to-back games in a row. The last time they did do that, if my memory serves correctly, it was the 2021, the spring, when they lost the A-10 championship to VCU and then promptly wow. lost the WNIT opener to Villanova and Maddie Seagrass, who continues to just dominate college basketball, just for the record. But moving on, just, well, we'll sum up by saying that game against St. Peter's, again, it's on Wednesday, the 21st, 2 p.m. at the Mullen Center. Head on down there if you are in the area, or you can listen to... Beckett and I on WMUA, the official radio network of UMass women's basketball. All UMass women's basketball coverage is brought to you by the quarters located just off the bike trail on route nine in Hadley. The quarters offers 25 vintage games from the eighties and nineties, as well as a full food menu, draft beers and cocktails. Weekly events at the quarters includes Monday trivia, Thursday karaoke, and weekend morning unlimited cereal buffet and cartoons. The quarters also offers private events. The quarters is online at hadleyquarters.com and on Instagram and Facebook. Switching to segment number two, which I am very excited about. We kind of made it up just before the show, but it will be fun since the non-conference schedule is almost over and our next episode will feature conference previews looking into the Atlantic 10 etc we figured it was a good time to basically wrap up the fall semester the first half of the UMass women's basketball season as we've talked about they're eight and three with their three losses being at Tennessee versus Mizzou at a neutral site and then at home against Columbia so we've got a whole list of awards here and Each of you will let me know of your award picks. We will start with Sam for this first award, and then we'll go around to Chris and then Beckett. Explain your winner, and then explain why we will start with Newcomer of the Fall. Newcomer of the Fall. There is a lot of faces. New 
few new faces on this team and they've sort of been figuring out again, the injuries have been hard for just this entire team to sort of really mesh together. But I think for me, the newcomer of the year, it's gotta be, I think it's gotta be Piaf Gabriel or actually no Layla fair. What am I saying? Layla fair is probably the newcomer of the year. Again, someone who's trying to find her footing transfer. She's had a few games where she's coming and played some really impactful minutes. She's had four games of playing over 20 minutes, especially in the FIU and Drake games, played some very impactful minutes, really made an impact. And even though the stats, she hasn't really scored much, she's made an impact on the defensive end. She gets rebounds. She hustles. And so far, I'm expecting her to really start to find her footing as the unit tries to mesh us. And we can see her maybe putting some more up on the scoring sheet and just really having a real impact in the offense. But it, for me, it's going to be Layla Fair. And Sam, I completely agree. Layla Fair is also my choice for newcomer of the year. I think she is getting there. And I say that with a smile because she has so much talent and so much potential and so much time too, that I think we'll see it throughout this season too. I think there'll be a couple games. She goes off for double digit points. Um, she's been good. She's been getting much better as the season's gone along. She's learning the system kind of on the fly. But I definitely agree that she is the newcomer of the fall. Chris, are you going to make it three for three? Yes, I'm going to agree. And I think the most underrated aspect of her game by far is the defense. Second on the team with blocks with 11. Second only. Second on the team, leader is 13. Also, just if you break that down per minute, it's almost four blocks per 40 minute. She's played 114 minutes, 11 blocks. I don't think anybody else on this team was above two and two per 40. So in the, if she had played more minutes, I think we might not only be talking about her for newcomer of the year, but also for defensive player of the year, uh, defensive player of the fall. And Beckett. Yeah, well, I'm going to be honest. Chris Vogel just took my exact phrase out of my mouth. <laughs> I was about to bring up the blocks. Uh, yeah, it's definitely Layla Fair. I mean, the truth is a lot of the other people who are new haven't really played much. She's the only one who's really, I mean, she and Piaf have both played decently, but what I was going to say is that, which is essentially the exact same thing Chris was going to say, is her defense is unreal. You know, she's second on the team in blocks, eighth on the team in minutes. So, I mean, clearly she gets in. She's an impact player. I'm really excited to see not only what she can do for the rest of the year, but what she can do for the rest of her career at UMass. Yes, Sam. And, yeah, going off that one more point, UMass currently has the best offense in the A-10. And their defense, again, and the statue doesn't jump out on paper on you is still is something that gets constantly overlooked by Tory Birdie's teams. And Layla Fair has been a big catalyst of that with a team at UMass, which has so much offensive firepower. Let's just say I'm bringing Cindy Taylor, Destiny's Vlogs, just to name a few. To have that safety cushion of Layla Fair knowing that she can go out there and just shut down the team's best defender, that's a luxury that a lot of teams would love to have. She has been great. The amount of time she's secured an important rebound on the defensive end has gotten those blocks. Those blocks are starting to become momentum builders during games with her ability to just keep extending those arms. They keep going, keep going, and then she makes the play. So it is unanimous. Layla Fair is our newcomer of the fall winner, but we have half a season to go. So we'll see if she stays atop that f for the entire season. So now we will move on to number two. Sam, this was your suggestion, so I'll let you go first as well for this one. The defensive player of the fall for the Minute Women. My defensive player of the fall is Bernaya Mayo. I had two people I was going with here. I had, but I chose Bernaya Mayo. I mean, 
you cannot you cannot talk about Bernard May without talking about her steals totals. She has had three games this season of five threes, one of two, five steals in a game in general is insane. But the fact that she does that so consistently and it's not out of the norm, it's so incredible. I believe she's up to almost three averages three steals on the season, which is for second in the eight ten. Her defensive presence has again, like you talked, Jacob, her ability to a momentum builder. She's made big steals in big points in games. The the Drake game, which pretty much helped them get the overtime. There have been so many points where she can just blanket a defender and just absolutely shut them down. And she's really just the anchor of this defense in so many ways. Her active hands are sensational on the defensive end. Some people didn't know this, but last year, Bernaya Mayo set the record for most steals in a season. She had 79 of them last year, which was more than any other minute women before her. And this year she continues to do that in terms of swiping the basketball. Beckett, who's your pick for defensive player of the fall? This is just, this is two for two here and just looking bad. We're coming right after these guys. Yeah. I'm, I'm also Bernaya Mayo. You know, I think, I think it's, you know, you, you think of defensive player of the year or defensive player of the fall in terms of like, uh, in terms of you think of in general in basketball, it's like you all often think of a, a, a center or a, you know, forward, but I mean, we saw Marcus smart win defensive player of the year last year and you know how important he was. I mean, guards are just as important on the defensive end. They have to guard the people who are quicker, who have better handles, stuff like that. Yeah. Bernayo Mayo has just been absolutely money this year. And, and I think everyone knows that destiny Filoxi is right there with her on the steals right there with her, you know, being an active, active player on the defensive end. But one thing that I was saying to uh, Josh was that I love how much Bernaya Mayo moves her feet when she's playing mm. defense, just all the time, constantly moving her feet. She's just always ready. And I love that. I'm going to go on a different direction here. I think this player is probably going to win a different award and probably a bigger award too. What about Sam Breen? Third in the team in steals, third in blocks, where I think is the most important because team struggled here. Defensive rebounding. She has 69 defensive rebounds. Sydney Taylor second at 44. Without her, this team really uh, struggles on the glass. And if you couple that with the ability to generate some steals and some blocks, that's three aspects of defense when nobody else on this team has all three. If you look, both Mayo and Filoxi, only one or two blocks. Uh, Fair and Nagalaklundi uh, only have a combined nine steals. So I think, it, I think she's just the most well-rounded def- defender on the team. I think she fits what a lot of people think of as like a defender of the year in terms of rim protector, like no one's getting in her office down low, that, t- that sort of stuff. And, but her steals are always so underrated. Last year, she was second on the team in steals. She does a really good job at poking the basketball away and sparking transitions down the floor, Sam. Yeah. And going off that, the, she's six one. And for someone of that height to be a double-double machine constantly on any given night, being an absolute magnet on the boards, that's something you love to have on your team. That means she's always going after loose balls. She's always going for every rebound. She's finding the opposing offensive player and getting them out of the paint. That's something that's overlooked when considering defensive players. I pick because Chris Chris Samper is my second pick, and I, I love the logic there. It's complete. It makes complete sense. I agree with you on that front. So we have two picks for Mayo for Defensive Player of the Fall, one pick for Breen, and then I will throw a third name in the list. My selection 
is Destiny Philoxy. And that is for a couple of reasons. One, she is doing very well in steals. You look at the team leaderboard, she is second in 26. So just behind Mayo. But I think of the charges. And I think of teams often are scared to drive to the paint because they know she's the weak side defender who is about to slide in and take a charge. And that alters how teams play. It forces teams to go into elbow range jumpers. It forces teams to turn back around. It forces teams to kick out. And she draws a ton of charges anyway. There's a reason she's been named to the A-10 all-defensive team in prior years. And I think this year she has just continued to be a very good defender. So that being said, Mayo is our winner for Defensive Player of the Fall, receiving two out of four votes. Breen and Philoxy receive the other two. So now we will go to our third award. We will start with Chris on this one. And this is can be interpreted however we like, and it is Best Game of the Fall. Yes, this is what I tried to get clarification from you before this, and you were very, very hesitant to give me any. However you I was looking at yeah, I struggled with this one because it's such a up to interpretation. Arizona State is probably the best game this team played, uh, dominating a Power Five team. Drake is the best game I'd say of in terms of entertainment value with that going overtime. But I'm going to interpret it as best game for this team because it is a UMass show. I'm going to go with that Arizona State game and beating a Power Five team by 24 points at their own gym. Sam. Yeah, Chris, I was debating between two games. I'm going to take the latter of your choice. I'm going to take the Drake game just by how significant and just what it represents to this team's identity, the resilience, the fight, the fact that they came back to tie it and then went scored, helped score Drake 17-0 to in overtime, which is absolutely insane on every metric. I mean, you can't get better than that. That personifies this team playing to their potential and Beckett says it all the time. This team hasn't peaked yet. That was just a small taste of the best of what's to come for the men and women. So we have a vote for ASU. We have a vote for Drake Beckett. Okay. Well, Sam and I are looking like, like we're like sharing my brains right now or something. Uh, yeah. I would also say that Drake game and I'll give you my, my best reasoning for it without using stats by, talking as a fan, which is that I was in the studio while you were calling that game, Jacob, and I was pretty much completely out of the game by the end, by the last two, three minutes. And then in the last 30 seconds, the team completely turns it around. And then in overtime, they go out and outscore the uh, Drake, what, 18, nothing, right? I'm pretty sure maybe 19, 17, nothing. nothing. Ah, well, okay. Anyway, (laughs) But yeah, that just showed so much heart, so much resilience. I thought they were were completely done. I was getting ready to pack up and leave. And then overtime happens. They come out as a, probably the best come from behind victory I may have ever seen in, in women's basketball like that. So it was electric. I loved that game. That's what my take is. And I'm, I'm going to make it three for four. I agree. That Drake game because, well, first of all, I think when you look back, at the end of the season, that's going to be the most important victory for UMass in terms of non-conference play. I think that is more important than the ASU game because, frankly, I don't think ASU is that good, and I think Drake is better. Um, But also, like Beckett said, 
UMass was down and dead in the water for 35, 36 minutes in that game. Well, actually, they played a very good first quarter, but they were, it felt like they were done. And then they weren't. And then Mayo makes the runner in the lane to tie it up. UMass gets the defensive stop right before the buzzer. And then overtime was all UMass. To go on a 22 nothing run against a team that had already scored 83 points in the game, and you go on a 22-0 run to end the game is just insane. And it was wild. And the game of the year on the court, but also, in my opinion, in importance. So the Drake victory, 183 was the final score in overtime. That gets WMUA's nomination of best game of the fall. So we move right along to player who has surprised. We will start with Beckett. And this may be a similar one to newcomer. We'll see Beckett. You can go first. Yeah. I mean, I think this was an interesting thing to interpret, especially because in our specific situation, UMass hasn't, like we said, the newcomers haven't really played a ton. Um, you know what you're getting from your starters. You know, it is what it is. Uh, I kind of interpreted it as what has been surprising to me that I haven't seen more of. And for me, that is Piaf Gabriel. I think there's a lot to be said about that. And I hope that she can play more because I think she has really good, uh, characteristics that could be added in and helps this team and one of those things is that she's over six foot five you know I mean that's unreal that's 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 some height that just some teams can't even dream about in in college basketball so I I'd love to see more out of her in the future I I know she's a good talent and yeah that's my surprise so far yeah I'm gonna I'm gonna build off of that it's similar to that it's more the fact that this player managed to hold her off and keep getting minutes Angelique Nagalakalundi has been probably the team's best interior defender. And I really thought going into the season, it would be Gabriel getting the minutes down at the five spot, but that hasn't happened. Uh, she's managed to hold on to the position and prevent the UConn transfer from getting the starting job or really playing at all. And that, that I think, is helping the team that she's been pretty dominant down there and has contributed pretty much every aspect, averaging seven boards, eight points, and over a block a game, and also almost a steal a game too. And Chris, you mentioned Gala Colondi as your selection. She has split a lot of time the past couple of years with McKenna White at that five position, which leads me to my selection for the player who surprised award this fall, which is McKenna White, both on the court, but also then when she left the court. I don't think I realized how important she is to this team until she got injured and wasn't out there. Her lack of communication, I'm sorry, her absence of communication when she was on the bench was big. UMass gets a lot quieter on the court when she's not out there defensively. They don't necessarily have the same energy. And that was something I maybe hadn't quite noticed when she was on the floor. And so... Not to mention her numbers were great in the first five games she played. 11 points per game, seven rebounds per game, 18 offensive boards out of her 36 rebounds. She's surprised in a positive way by stepping up her game this summer. She got challenged and she definitely took her game to a level we hadn't seen from her. And so she's my selection. And that will take us to Sam. Well, I was going to say McKenna White. And honestly, I'm going to stick with McKenna White because like you said, Jacob, took the words right out of my mouth. We didn't we didn't realize how important she was to this team from a depth perspective and also an immediate impact until she was injured. 
Heron and Gongolanti were the anchors of that interior defense. And Gongolanti really had to shoulder a lot more of the load when she was out. And that, not that she wasn't out for the task, it was just a lot to handle, not something she was used to because she's so used to splitting time. So it'll take a lot to get used to jumping into that huge of a role. But like McKenna White is such an impactful player. She's been only getting better as she's been playing more. She had a she's having a career high in scoring, a career high in pretty much every statistical category. And when healthy, she is probably she can make an argument she's probably the fourth best player on the team and a team with a lot of talent. So all four of us go post players in terms of people who have surprised either positively or negatively. Half of us go McKenna White. So we'll say she is the winner for that. We hope to see her back on the court soon. She was making progress towards the Columbia game. Maybe a week and a half off could enable her to play on Wednesday. We'll find out soon enough. So moving right along, we got three awards left. The award for most improved. I will start with Beckett again. I'm going to be honest. I, I didn't realize we were doing that one. I'm sorry. Can you, can Surprisa, I come next? Yes. We will start with Sam. Thank you. Um, I think this was an easy one for me. I think it's Bernaya Mayo. I mean, obviously we knew the jump from, she was going to jump into elite category this year in terms of like where she stands in the A-10, but she is just blowing it, blowing that out of the water, improved in every statistical category from last year, averaging 11 points, almost three steals a game. Assist numbers are up. But also what's struck me about Bernard Mayo is how she's coming to really command the offense when Philoxy needs some time without the ball. We're so used to Philoxy really commanding it and she's amazing at it. But every now and then your best guard can use a rest. And Mayo has stepped into that role flawlessly, has not, does not turn the ball over that much, knows what they're getting into. It can really is seen as a leader in all honesty on the team. So Bernard Mayo is, I feel like the easy pick for me. Moving on to Chris. I'm going to go back to the same pick as my surprise player of the year. Uh, Gallic Lundy's taken a pretty big jump despite having the competition uh, when she plays. I, I think she's just flashed the ability to be the difference maker down low. Where last year, she yeah, she was effective, but not as much, not as, like, it was more you were focused on bringing, having to play the four, having to play the five. Just the developments there help the team so much in the fact that she can, she allows Breen to slide up to the three spot when they want to go and play a bigger brand of basketball and match up better against those power five teams. So I, that's my pick for most improved so far. Okay. We have a Mayo and we have a Galakulundi. So Beckett. All right. I'm ready now. Okay. So. I think what you guys brought up when you were talking about uh, defensive player of the year, I think kind of resonated with me or sorry. Um, most surprising. My apologies. Um, I think it's gotta be McKenna white. Honestly, I know she has been injured for a while. So that, that does take a hit off it. And I understand that she's played few games, so it might not be fair to say, but I, I think, I mean, I was just looking quickly. I mean, she doubled her points, almost doubled her points per game from last year in the few games she's played. I mean, and like you said, Without her on the court, there is a noticeable, noticeable difference. And so I think it's safe to say that she has that she is very important to this team. And without her, they're worse off. And so we have three different selections, and I'm going to make it four different selections for most improved. And this may seem like a surprise initially, but 
we've talked about it a lot this season, actually. I think most improved player is Sydney Taylor because of how she has improved defensively, how she has improved her mindset, and how she has improved her leadership. Her rebounding numbers are like we haven't seen from her this year in her career. This year, she's averaging over five rebounds per game. That's nowhere close to what we saw in past seasons. She's passing the basketball great. She's third on the team with 34 assists. Her ability to or her, the work she has put in has really paid off defensively. Her feet are moving like crazy. She's always in the passing lanes. She is finally a well-rounded, holistic basketball player where she's contributing, even if her three-point shot's not falling, and her leadership was missed for that one game she didn't play in the Mizzou. And I really feel that she has taken the most leaps and also the most important leaps for this team becoming more than just a shooter. Yeah. I I'll be honest. I was looking back. I, my knock on her was that her shootings regressed. I she's as of late been much better shooter than early in the year. She's up to 38% from three. We talked about this constantly. She went from being in the preseason. We're like, okay, she's that three point specialist that you cannot make shots to okay, now she's not hitting those threes, but she's doing everything else. And now that she's making the shots again, she is probably the most improved player. I think you've convinced me on that one. But her taking, that, for me. Yeah, her taking that leap forward and then getting back to what she did well last year is going to be so crucial for this team when they get deep in A-10 play towards the A-10 tournament, hopefully March Madness. So we have two awards left. And before we will wrap up, episode 11 of the UMass women's basketball show. First, we will have a quick word about the quarters located just off route nine on the bike trail in Hadley. The quarters offers unlimited arcade play with 25 vintage games from the eighties and nineties, as well as a full food menu, draft beers and cocktails. Weekly events of the quarters include Monday trivia, Thursday karaoke and weekend morning unlimited cereal buffet and cartoons. The quarters also offers private events and is online at hadleyquarters.com and on Instagram and Facebook. Two awards left starting with most memorable play. We will start with Chris. Um I think this is one it's kind of a sequence more than anything. I'm going to take the last I don't know 30 seconds minute of that game down in Florida force overtime against Drake. Uh, that was just, it. it's more, I mean, set up overtime, but just that sequence right there is so huge when you talk about this team's non-conference. They don't pull that out. You're looking at them being seven and four right now, and it's, okay, this team's severely disappointing from what they did, and then also you're now not playing for a trophy against FIU the next day. You're playing the third place game. I, I think that's probably the biggest moment for uh, – that's probably the biggest moment possible in terms of how much it swung our perception of this team. And it's probably the most memorable thing that happened in terms of wins and losses. Like you said, Chris, changing that from a loss to a win and the way they did it, yeah, it's definitely right up there. Mr. Kinches. Yeah, I'm a double down on Chris and like a more specific play by a more specific player. Bernaya Mayo steal that led to the layup that tied the game to send it to overtime. 
again, I keep saying this a lot. It personified what this team can do when it's at its best. When it's when they put their mind to it, they are running through opponents. They can beat anyone. And that sort of showed that fight and termination and the belief in themselves. I mean, and then they go on. That sort of catal- that catapulted them to then shut out Drake in overtime. I mean, it personified the defensive effort that gets overlooked by a player who completely gets overlooked a lot. So it personified a lot of what this team represents. So we've got two votes for the end of game sequence against Drake, specifically Mayo steals. So Beckett, are you going to make it three? I am not. Um, Mm -hmm. This is a bit more of, you know, it's not really team success. So I can understand why someone could say that it's not the biggest moment, but I think it makes sense because you could, you could talk about either of the two players who have, who've had huge milestones this year, but I think, you know, Sid Taylor scoring her a thousandth point was probably my favorite moment of the year, just because such a big moment, such a great player, one of the greatest, you know, UMass women's basketball players of all time. And she deserved that. Um, she's been working her butt off. And I was just super excited to see that, you know, she's a great player and it was awesome. And the way she did it, like wasting no time, just immediately went out against Lowell that Tuesday night and was like, here's a three, here's another three. Oh, yep. I'm already at a thousand. I'm on my way to a 20 piece today. Like, yeah, it, there you go. Exactly. And I think that was very cool. And like you said, she is one of the better players that this program has ever had. And I'm going to focus on someone who in a moment that was even more influential in the program record books. And that is the second game down in Arizona where destiny Philoxy sets two program records to set the record for most games played in program history and the record for most assists in program history. I'm not sure which is more impressive because they're both insane and for her to accomplish both of those are a testament to how long she's been here, but also how much she's been able to stay healthy, how great her ball distribution is, but everything that she has done and how much she has grown throughout her time in the program for me, I felt was encapsulated by her reaching both those program records to be number one at the top of the list. Like she said afterwards for it's very cool to have your name written in there for a long time. And her name will be in there for a very long time. So that is my most memorable play. So now Last one of episode 11. Who is the MVP of the fall semester? Sam. Uh, I'm glad I get to start this one off. I think it's Sam Breen. This te- we talked about so many other great players on the team and not take away from that. Sam Breen, she's the reigning A-10 player of the year. Accolades speak for herself. She is the center of this team. She is incredible. A double-double machine on any given night can score 30, can score in so many ways. And we talk about complete players. Sam Breen's three-point shooting over her time at UMass has improved very steadily to a point where it's now not the best, but still somewhat of a consistent and honestly is somewhat of a threat, which opens up her game in so many ways. She is an offensive dynamo, can score in so many ways and defend, rebound. She does it all. She's my MVP. Chris. Yeah, I don't think there's going to be much surprise here because I picked her to win Defensive Player of the Year, and then she's also second in assists and leading the team in points, Sam Green. If you just go by individually and sort each category by most at it, it's shocking how much Breen just dominates being either one, two, or three. Uh, most minutes, second field goals made, second three-pointers made, uh, second free throws made, 
most points, highest average points, second most offensive rebounds, most defensive rebounds, most total rebounds, most rebounds per, per, and then like I mentioned earlier, third steals, third blocks. So she's basically been one of the team's leaders in every single measurable statistic in non-conference play. There's really not been a weakness to her game this year, which is impressive for any player at any level. Yeah, so I think both of you choosing the reigning A-10 player of the year, you can't go wrong with that. Me personally, I would also say Sam Breen for all the reasons you have mentioned, but for argument's sake and (laughs) because he's not here, I'm going to – Josh Schreiber has been pushing this rather hard recently, and I think he makes a couple good points where for him, he thinks Sidney Taylor is – one of the best players in, or he says that Sid is the best player in the conference. At least that's what he said on social media a couple of days ago, and I'm holding <laughs> him to it. But I think you look at the whole conference, Sid and Sam are the two best players and probably have the best stats. If you look at what Sid has done, she has become so much more well-rounded 17 points, five rebounds, 34 assists this season, 10 steals as well. She's the only player on the team that has shot the three ball consistently well this season. And her absence was greatly missed against Mizzou. And sometimes you met, you can measure value based on if someone's missing, how much does that hurt? Well, she was missing against the Mizzou game. And so I know Josh would bring up Sid here. So I figured I would do it for him and to make the discussion a little interesting. So Beckett, we'll send it to you. Well, I think that's actually, I think how this all worked out was pretty well done. Um, Truthfully, if they're, if we could do co MVPs, they should both be MVPs because they're both unreal players love watching them. But in for argument's sake, and for the fact that the three of you all said Sam Breen, I think I am going to have to go with Josh on this one, say Sid Taylor. (laughs) And here's why I think like she is obviously the rating, uh, Sam Breen is obviously the reigning A-10 player of the year, and she's doing everything just as good, maybe maybe even better than last year. But Sydney Taylor, like everything we've said good about her today, she's a leader. She's playing good defense this year. She shoots the ball well. She passes it. She's She's communicative, rebounds well for a guard. I mean, she's shooting – I mean, her splits – 41, 48, 89. Those are professional numbers. I mean, it's unreal. And I really do think that Mizzou game is a a testament to that, is that the team goes when she goes. You know, I think, I mean, I think you can say that about Sam Breen too, obviously. And she's played every game, which is great. But she was very obviously missing there, not only from an offensive perspective, but from a defensive perspective, from a, from a, a team overall, just like, you know, I think one of the greatest things about this team that we get to watch is how well they meld together and how well that they are able to to show up as a team and i think she is a huge huge maybe even the biggest part of that and so i think what this whole mvp conversation comes out to say is basically throughout non-conference play umass has been carried by sydney taylor and sam breen it feels like basically every win they've had one of those two players has gone off because they have because they have been great through the first 11 games of the season. I don't think there's any arguing that Breen and Taylor haven't been great. Yeah, that having those two players just raises this team's floor so much when you get an A-10 play. Last year, it felt like you were very reliant on Breen to play well. 
And if she didn't, you might run into trouble against pretty much anyone in the conference. Having Taylor playing the way she is means that if Breen doesn't play well one game, you still have that chance that if Sydney Taylor has a great game and plays well, you can still play with pretty much anyone in the country or especially anyone in the conference at a minimum, despite one of your two best players struggling, which will help them in a game down stretch of conference play or maybe in the conference tournament. You need depth in your bench and you need depth in your stars. And UMass has definitely have depth in their stars. We're continuing to see how much depth they have in their bench, but This has been a fun episode discussing the non-conference play, getting to take a step back and see what the first 11 games have been like. We've done awards. We've done our recaps and thoughts. So now that's all that's left to do is, well, play two more non-conference games and then head into Atlantic 10 play. As we talked about, UMass's next game is against the St. Peter's Peacocks in Amherst on Wednesday at 2 p.m. Then they will play Dartmouth the following Wednesday at 7 p.m. before Atlantic 10 play starts on New Year's Eve, 2 p.m. at the Mullen Center. UMass will host St. Bonaventure. So they're in the midst of a five-game homestand. They've only played one of those games. So if you're in the Pioneer Valley the next couple of weeks, go check out the UMass women's basketball team, two non-conference games to go. Then Atlantic 10 plays begins. We will have the next episode of the UMass women's basketball show coming out soon, TBD, but it will be before the conference opener. So keep an eye out for that as well. But for Beckett Story, Chris Vogel and Sam Kinches, I am Jacob Munch. Thanks for listening to episode 11 of the UMass Women's Basketball Show on the official radio network of Minute Women Hoops, WMUA Sports 91.1 FM Amherst.